From the BPP Pro Bono Unit, this is the Universal Podcast of Human Rights. Produced by Sam Grimley, Isma Ayeb, and me, Hannah Anson. In this episode, we speak to Professor Tom Brooks, the leading expert on the Life in the UK Citizenship Test, about what it means to be a British citizen and who gets to define this. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? Something controversial, but I know needs to be said. If we are to uphold these values that matter most, we need not only respect for all traditions, but a common language. It is right that people who come to stay in our country learn English. It is right that they have some sense of what it is to be British, of our history and our culture. And through the citizenship ceremonies and tests, it is right to take British citizenship seriously. The Life in the UK citizenship test, a must for anyone wanting to qualify for a British passport. According to the government, studying for it is meant to help all those hoping to make the UK their home integrate better into British society. Just last year, Prime Minister David Cameron imposed changes to the format of the exam, saying that instead of answering questions on European institutions, British culture and history needed to take priority. During his current visit to the US, Mr Cameron made an appearance at the David Letterman show, where he was faced with a UK citizenship test of his own. First of all, a rural Britannia, yeah. uh, written by whom? I mean, it's, it's uh, the iconic association with the British Empire. Uh, Britain rules the world. Who, who wrote that? Do you know? Um, God, you're, you're testing me there. Um, <laughs> Elgar, I'll go for. Uh, based on a poem by James Thompson. Are you familiar with James Thompson? Well, I am now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Set to music in 1740 by Thomas Arne. When was the Magna Carta signed? <laughs> the Magna Carta signed in 1215. 1215. And the literal translation is was what? You have Magna... I, I, again, you're testing me. Um, <laughs> Boy, it'd be good if you knew this. Yeah, well, it would be. We want a simpler, faster, firmer, better system. One that fulfills our promises to the British people, where we seize that once-in-a-generation opportunity to take back control of our borders and end end free movement, which I appreciate members on the opposite side of the House simply do not want. We will restore democratic control of our immigration, and that is effectively what the British people voted for. How tall is the London Eye? (laughs) Is it 282 feet? 373 feet, 443 feet, or 552 feet? I honestly have never measured anything in feet before, so I don't even have a clear <laughs> concept of what that is. Um, I'm going to say the one that Big. started with 400, that I've forgotten the exact number. Correct. Very good British knowledge. Don't want to brag, born and raised in Britain. Uh this sort of knowledge comes up a lot. What county does Stonehenge stand in? 
Is it Lancashire, Berkshire, West Yorkshire or Wiltshire? I thought it was in Devon. Is Devon not a county? It's on the way. It's on the way to Devon. I thought it was in Devon too. No, the correct answer is Wiltshire, I'm afraid. How many colonies were granted independence in 1947? Was it 11, 7, 13 or 9? Granted. I wouldn't say granted is the word I'd use there. 11. It was 11 an option. I'm not even sure. <laughs> Very confident. No, 11 was an option, yes. The right answer is 9, I'm afraid. What year did, it, what year did England rule this country? What year did England rule that country? <laughs> what makes you sufficiently British? And how would you even quantify this? If, like me, you were born in the UK, then these questions probably haven't really crossed your mind. But for those who've migrated to Britain and want to become naturalised citizens with fully realised rights here, then these questions are vital. Passing the Life in the UK test is a crucial step in obtaining British citizenship. Introduced in 2005 and subsequently revised multiple times, the test comprises multiple choice questions on topics like the values and principles of the UK and what is the UK, a long and illustrious history. With a required pass mark of 18 out of 24, which is 75%, you need more than a first to succeed in this test. And at £50 a go, with the fee reapplying for every retake, it's an expensive test to fail. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Tom Brooks, an award-winning author, columnist and policy advisor, and the leading expert on the life in the UK test, about what makes this test, in his words, a bad pub quiz and the more disturbing motivations behind it. A citizenship test isn't something that's unique to Britain, so what's so controversial about the life in the UK test compared to other countries? This is where it begins to become interesting. So. Some countries, like, say, the United States or Australia, which has a citizenship test, both of them have uh, a few different sections, roughly same number of questions. No section is particularly more important than the other. But the Life in the UK test is completely and utterly different. In the official uh, sample practice guides, which I've examined in doing the only comprehensive report into the test, it found that they were... Uh, more questions in each of these practice tests from some sections, namely the history and the culture uh, sections, than there were from anything else, say government uh, and law, how the country works, that that was kind of less than than others. So whereas other countries, there's kind of a, qual- a kind of equality between the different sections. In the British test, they have different weights. But the test handbook, the official handbook, the guide, the Bible, as to what you should expect and how the the thing works, gives you no examples as to what the multiple choice might look like, uh, how things might work. It says zero about that some questions might come from uh, one or two sections more than other sections. There's nothing at all about that. Um, And I think in a deliberate attempt to trip people up by not being forthcoming, not being sufficiently transparent or fair um, in any, I think, 
sense of fair play. We are a nation that wants to be tolerant. We want to believe in fair play. We want to believe in the dignity of every individual. Is this lack of fair play a common allegation that's been levied against the test? So the first test was heavily criticised for uh, what it was, how it was drafted, the kind of granular detail, um, historical facts. <laughs> they had the king going one place when he was actually going away the other place. Sir Bernard Crick said at the time in, the, in a Guardian interview, you know, why were there factual errors uh, in the first test? Answer, we didn't have much time to write it. One of my favorite examples of a factual error in the test, uh, if you'll humor me, was uh, the, the deep problem of how many members of parliament there really are. Now, you might say this is the kind of thing that maybe people don't need to know, but it's a, it's a number that somebody knows, right? You know, there's a set number. Uh, it changes, all right, but, but on a given day, we know what this is. Anyway, the initial test, uh, it said, let me get my facts right, that there were 645 people, 645 members of parliament. That was the officially correct answer for the test. And this official correct answer was factually wrong. There were 646 at that time. Now the question is, who is smoking what? Why, why, where? I'm metaphorically only, of course. I would never suggest uh, otherwise. Uh, anything untoward, uh, unprofessional. But so why would uh, they get this number wrong? Why 645 and not 646 is the number? Well, the best that I have pieced together, and I've heard no, I've heard no explanation other than Sir Bernard Crick saying, well, I was just busy, you know, just I had not much time. I made mistakes, you know, I throw my hands up. So why 645? Well, at that time, the honorable member, let me get my facts right, for Staffordshire South died during said general election at the time. So 645 people took their oaths while there was a special election to elect the 646th. But there were 646 seats. There were 646 full members, as it were. And so got that number wrong. Now, the second edition then goes about to correct it. And so it says the number 646. Tiny little problem during the life of that test. So they produced the first test November 2005. The second test is produced in 2007, two years later. They don't make the third edition to 2013. What happens between 2007 and 2013? I'll answer uh, for all the public law anoraks in the background, listening, jumping up and down, waving their hands vigorously, trying to give me the answer, shouting at the podcast. They want to tell you that the number was changed to 650. They are correct. So it was true that the correct answer for part of the life of the, this test, for both tests, during the first, first test was wrong the whole time, it was never 645 in law. The second test was only partly true in law, 646. It changed to 650, but it was still wrong uh, again. And what's really great about this story isn't just this fact that the, that the and this, this then I think there's something to answer for here, right? Immigration ministers, uh, home secretaries, signing off, coming on your television screens, doing podcasts. Can you imagine telling the public that they, immigration taken most seriously. This is a huge issue. You know, this is the most rigorous. You know, we are all over this. You know, we are so uh, all this other stuff. This, and we demand, you know, that they know stuff. And it's so important. They know things about life in our country that we love and we care about so much. And we don't even know how many of us there are. What? 
What? They couldn't bother to know how many members of parliament they are? And then before anyone on the, who's listening says, well, that's a problem of the Labour Party that was in government for tests one and two. I am doing a bipartisan, nonpartisan attack, um, uh, uh, distance, pick your angle here. I'm either attacking all sides or none. In 2013, the test is something perhaps even more remarkable, right? So what's changed now, my close friend, is that we continue to ask and demand people who take the test know how many people are, are, are in the Welsh Assembly, the Scottish Parliament, Northern Ireland Assembly. That is always, that's been required still, but we'll no longer ask how many are sitting in Parliament. So they've got out of the, the, the problem of how many MPs are there, which you think the MPs signing off on this said thing would know, and if they took anything seriously about their job, um, then you would think this would be kind of, I don't know, it'd be in my top 10 um, of the most obvious things that they would not get wrong for immigrants to be required to know, and if I get the number wrong myself as an immigrant, then I can hop back on that boat and get myself back to New York because, you know, I don't know enough about life here and so on. I mean, if you're going to demand facts, it's important that the damn things are facts. It's important these things are facts and that these facts are not things that are arbitrary. These are things that are not tricky and all the rest of it. And one would think the numbers of MPs should not be a thing. You often describe the test as like a bad pub quiz. What do you think of some of the questions that people are asked? They're nuts. Uh, they're absolutely, they're absolutely crazy. Um, you know, and, and how do I define crazy? You've got um, historical dates of birth, dates that of things happening. Uh, there's about 278 that I counted in the in the test booklet, but not a single one appears on any practice test. Uh, and there seems to be no evidence that you actually need to know uh, or ask to know any of these dates that people lived and died. Kind of curious view of history, enormously London-centric. Other things in the book, like um, how tall the London Eye is, both in feet and in meters, and also the approximate age of uh, Big Ben's clock tower, now the, I think now called the Elizabeth Tower, after Her Majesty the Queen. I often would joke that uh, the young you know, spads or civil servants who were given the task of drawing the, the uh, test up uh, test handbook by themselves, as I suspect they probably were, just looked out the office and, oh, there's the London Eye. Yeah, we'll say how tall that is. I mean, there's no mention of the Durham Cathedral, you know, which is I've got view of uh, from my office uh, right now. You know, northern landmarks uh, are in short supply. It's like everything around where the, the government writing up the test was sitting was of importance or what they thought was important. And it's a very partisan test uh, in, in that way. The only person who has words put in bold are Winston Churchill. As well as quizzing knowledge, the test is also supposedly about aiding integration. Do you think it achieves this? <laughs> when you become an adult, a British adult, a British citizen, what were the kinds of things you think a person living everyday life ought to know to be a fully fledged active citizen of this country? Is it, um, you know, what's on the national curriculum? 
Uh, you might think that might be, that there's a different one in Scotland. Well, let me spoil it for you. That was removed from the current citizenship test. That's actually not there. That there's uniforms that, that many uh, school children uh, wear in this country. They don't wear them in my country, uh, where I came from. In fact, about half of the education section in the current handbook is about how immigrants, <laughs> this is a book about our integrating, being part of society, it's about how we can kind of create, create our own free schools, um, depart from whatever um, the curriculum might be, and kind of go off and do our own thing. And it says nothing at all about um, universities. That there's a difference between college and university that isn't true in other places like you know the United States or, or or Canada. Yeah, about curriculum, about how things work. That there's a fee. We can disagree on what the the top three things you'd want to have about schools in your test would be, but that half of it would be about that there's free schools and setting them up, and no mention of grammar schools, no mention of comps, no mention of universities, no mention of university fees, and so on. You might think is odd. And that someone who didn't know any of these things, didn't know about comps, grammar schools, curriculum, and so on and so forth, might not actually know much about life in the UK when it came to education. You've done the only comprehensive report analysing the life in the UK test and in it you illustrate which terms have been taken out of the test glossary over the years and the results are quite telling with terms like racially motivated crime, discrimination and legal aid being removed from the test glossary. I'm not looking at my report right now but I noticed that the glossary was much shorter in the third edition than it was in the first and the second and I thought well this is very odd. What are they done? Racially motivated and discrimination and other things would be removed, you know, as terms that, that immigrants coming to this country don't need to know. Um, that These are factors that uh, uh, arguably that, you know, that according to the test, that a British citizen knowing about life in the UK doesn't need to know about either. And I saw they had decided to add house, as in House of York, as a thing that was necessary to know that was missing. Catholic, was also one thing they added that was missing from from before. I thought that was an interesting thing to see them add that. Um, but also sonnet. So, so you know, kind of glossary for immigrants to know and have life, in, you know, know something about life in the UK, not necessary to know about crime and other types of things, but is right uh, to know uh, about a sonnet and the House of York. I thought, you know, just like, what's this about? Um, this isn't about people knowing more about their rights as a, as a citizen, whoever you are, whatever your status, uh, naturalized citizen or not. Um, this is about a certain view of things. There's a, a remarkable fact uh, for people to memorize in the test that is one of the official sample questions about who in the country was voted as being the greatest Britain. Now that sounds like a pretty objective kind of thing. Um, you know, a pretty, you know, scientific survey, um, opinion poll, YouGov, you know, you, you know, whatever it is. The correct answer was Winston Churchill. Well, when I went to investigate, well, what do I mean greatest Britain that year, Churchill, something came out, something happened. And that was a BBC competition amongst a specified number of, of people they put forward. They each had a celebrity to champion their favorite person. And the winner was chosen by people uh, texting or phoning for a fee 
um, to this BBC hotline or associated thingamabob. It is most definitely not a uh, scientific, accurate, objective, anything at all. It's a, it's a show um, <laughs> that, that, that got their boy um, the top prize, as it were. So it's kind of like, you know, was this really the greatest Britain? And this is kind of put forward to you as a fact um, for you to know. And it's an interesting thing to, to, to reflect on, that facts about Britain, they ought to be about life in the UK, things you could know without the handbook. Is it too cynical to say that this test isn't actually designed to be passed? Uh, it, it is the common running joke amongst everyone I speak to. Ha ha ha, I couldn't pass this either. Across parties, this is not a partisan uh, swipe at, at left or right or up or down. <laughs> um, everyone tells me, you know, crikey, you know, I couldn't pass this thing. If this is not a thing that, 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 that school children would be comfortable with, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, what is, you know, then what's really going on? Then we're talking about something that isn't about ensuring people can integrate, that they do have a basic understanding of life here, like you or anyone else who's been um, here before um, has. This test is actually then doing something else. It actually then has a, a, a hidden motive about being a barrier and, and not a bridge. Why is citizenship even important? Well, I think citizenship matters, of course, because it gives you full rights of participation and protections. You know, when I've been in uh, as a non-citizen in the Republic of Ireland, where I was for two years, and then when originally coming to the UK, yes, you know, I felt welcome and I was happy and I wanted to be there and all those things. But, you know, I could have whatever the opinion I'd want to have about politicians I want to have. I could be paying tax. I could be paying top rate of tax, as I was in the UK uh, when, uh, after I got here. Um, I had no right to, to vote. I had no right of say. I could be barred entry for a wide range of reasons. That sense of being vulnerable, of not being one of them, uh, being on the outside, um, being there but for the grace of God and, uh, as it were, the mercy of others is something that uh, you can feel very acutely uh, when you're not a citizen. I had my um, student visa. You, you'd have to go into um, every year to have it um, validated or, or, or be checked. I had certain conditions on, uh, on what I was doing. So I had to go in um, for, for that. And it was all a bit, um, a bit creepy at the time, kind of wondering, you know, were they going to deny me this visa? Was I going to be um, kicked out? You know, I was already in the country. I was already allowed to, uh, as it were, to, to be there. I was about to begin my studies or I was about to go on to work. And um, if the one person I was speaking to at their equivalent of the Department of Work Conventions, if they didn't like the look of me, even though I had a job, even though I had a letter from the university to work there, even though I had all those other things in place, you know, they, they could say no. And, and I didn't have money for a lawyer. I certainly didn't know anything about Irish law. And, you know, you're really very much at the, at the mercy of things, whereas a citizen, you know, you are in a, in a much stronger position to kind of get on uh, with life. Britishness even exists as a concept anymore? 
And if so, how would you even define that? What's important for the British story, and, the, and this is all hugely relevant to what Britishness means, is that in the 1940s, people who were born in any part of the UK to a British father, you know, people who had rights to British citizenship, they were getting a passport of citizen of the UK in colonies. That was the passport. And someone born in Jamaica, someone born in Malaysia, they could get the exact same passport with the exact same rights. And if they could get themselves to the UK, and through Windrush, many did, um, they could get to the UK, they had the right to be here, they had the right to vote here, they had the right to be active and to participate and so on. Now that went into retreat heading into the 1960s when the rules on who could count as British changed. In the UK, rights of citizenship didn't expand to a degree. They, they went into retreat. They became restricted. Ooh, hang in a second. You weren't born here. Um, your dad's not from here. We're going to kind of change what the rules were. And so the ability, so once your passport, if you, you know, they all have expiry dates, if your citizen of the UK and colonies passport began to expire, whether or not you'd qualify for a new UK passport, that required that you had kind of closer connections to a particular territory, that you had other types of connections to, to Britain as a place, uh, geographically, and not merely that you were born under a political legal regime under the crown, uh, or had allegiance to um, the crown. Um, that, that changed. And that's kind of made, has muddied the issue to some degree about what Britishness is. As when people have been asked in various surveys, you know, what does it mean to be British? You get sometimes people saying, oh, well, it means being kind of born here. It means speaking English. It means being Christian. Well, actually, you know, from the first day, it didn't mean speaking English. There was no requirement to speak English in 1707. That wasn't the rule. And, and today, Today, if, you're, if there's a new parliament sworn in, if you're the next member of parliament, you know, from whatever your happy constituency is, whether, whatever country, part of the country you're in, you do not need to swear your loyalty to the Queen in English. You can still do it in Cornish. You can do it in Welsh. And people do do it in Welsh. And they do do it in Scots Gaelic. You know, it, the other non-English languages are still used now to swear, you know, have the same equivalency of English today in that setting as it did um, hundreds of years ago. And so when people talk about Britishness being connected to a language, being connected to a particular view of, of Christianity uh, exclusively or other types of things, you know, the, you know this isn't right uh, then. This is kind of creating something new today that was not true in the past, at the same time claiming to recreate something from the past. If we're actually going to look at what it meant to be British a hundred years ago or 60 years ago and kind of, and that's the right way to be as it were, well, it didn't mean being Christian. It didn't necessarily mean speaking English. It didn't mean necessarily being white or anything like that. And it didn't necessarily mean being born in Britain or having anyone in your family who had ever been born uh, in Britain. Uh, it meant being under the crown. Very comfortable saying I'm British, black British. Of course I am. And I'm very, very proud. No one could say I wasn't because I talk about it all the time, about my Caribbean roots. And well, I know the Caribbean very British, well. But it's to but say that English. I'm English. Sorry? What? You're, you're British, but you're not English. Well, that's, that's the point I think you're making, and I'm disagreeing with that. 
Uh, tell me, well, what, do you think, what do you no, think... If, what? I was, if I was born in the Caribbean, as a white person, I certainly wouldn't call myself yeah. well, I'm a afraid Caribbean. You obviously, I'm have you ever been to the Caribbean, Jean? I haven't, no, I haven't no. had the fortune. Well, then you probably don't realise that in countries like Barbados, there are significant white Caribbean populations who have been there for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And just as you can be in America and you can mm -hmm. be African-American uh, 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 or you can be Italian-American or mm -hmm. you can be Irish-American, uh, how is it that here in England you can only claim that Englishness effectively, Jean, if you are white? It's interesting that a lot of the rhetoric around migration seems to be almost about rewriting history, as you've, you know, kind of illustrated. Do you think that today Britishness can still be defined in these multicultural terms? A very good friend of mine, Bhikkhu Parikh, did a very interesting report. A brilliant man um, from India, uh, born in India, Indian citizen from birth, but just like me, came to Britain as a graduate student, and just like me, stayed, or I should say, just like him, I stayed. And his report looked at the feature of multi-ethnic Britain and noted that in kind of getting kind of clear about Britishness, kind of at its core, Britishness was this kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural thing at its heart, uh, genuinely, given the nature of empire, given the nature of commonwealth. This colonial legacy has got negative things, but it's also what connected him. And so the glue that keeps us together is a multicultural society, which we are in, in Britain. Yes, some societies are more multicultural than others, but, but what we are, a country that's, you know, the main dish, the most favorite dish is chicken tikka masala and not, you know, corned beef with, uh, you know, and all the rest and, and cabbage and, and other types of things. So he thought we ought to appeal to kind of public institutions as this kind of glue that binds, um, and that we have a kind of common core, that public space we interact with, and that ought to be a source of our focus. Outside these kind of public spaces and public institutions that hold us together, do you think there's anything else across the UK that people would use to define their sort of sense of British identity? So I think, you know, there was a number of views leading to a Crick uh, review led by Sir Bernard Crick called the Life in the UK Advisory Group. And they went across the UK to try to understand what Britishness was. Their job was to give specific recommendations for what a test for British citizenship could look like, what British citizenship ceremonies, how they might be conducted. They found that when they went to Scotland, people, you know, what does it mean to be British? Folks said stuff along the lines of Hogmanay being in a very important part of the year and also haggis being an important uh, British food. When they go to Wales, food always comes up in these things. When they go to Wales, Welsh cakes gets on the menu. I imagine rugby was mentioned. Um, they go to other parts of the, of the south, southwest. Um, uh, Morris dancing or something like this uh, comes up in one of the English regions they were looking at. Now, a Morris dancing Welsh-speaking, Hogmanay-celebrating person. Is, is that British? And if you don't do those things, does it mean you're not really British or not fully British? Or, or you know, well, obviously not. And so there was something kind of curious uh, going on sociologically in, in thinking about that. And so they basically concluded that the British citizenship test ought to focus on 
exactly you know, that there was a kind of a glue that we ought to think about denim effectively you know backing the denim report or at least that part of it that there were uh, and the way to go was through public institutions and that public space we interact with do you think we can ever separate questions of citizenship from questions about race there seems to be this almost obsession within the home office in recent years with depriving people of their citizenship and I'm thinking of cases like the Rochdale groomers who obviously committed an absolutely heinous crime, but on top of serving their prison sentences, also had their British citizenship removed. And I'm just wondering where this need to take that Britishness away from people comes from. And then someone say, well, look, you know, that person maybe doesn't have the, has the right to be here. They're here you know, because they're, they're a visitor here as an immigrant or something like that. Well, if they're British, you know, then we hold them to the, should hold them to the same standard as any other British citizen. If we say to a British murderer or someone else that they can be out of prison at a period of time, maybe people think that that punishment is too weak and it should be strengthened. And then my point is, okay, well, then, you know, no problem with reviewing these things all the time. If the punishment's too lenient and it should be more tough, then okay, fine, let's make it more tough. Uh, but let's not only make it more tough for the people that come, that have links to some other to some countries, but not to people who have links to other countries or no links to other countries. That seems to be kind of a very arbitrary distinction of where people were born, or where their families happen to be, not really connected to any any link to dangerousness, because immigrants are not more likely to commit crimes, serious or otherwise, than people who are not immigrants. She was a schoolgirl when she ran away to become a so-called jihadi bride. Now she just wants to come home. This is how Shamima Begum reacted when the Home Secretary first revoked her passport. It's kind of heartbreaking to read. I, I thought it would, my family made it sound like it would be a lot easier for me to come back to the UK when I was speaking to them in Barhals. Today's ruling means Ms. Begum remains effectively stateless, a citizen of nowhere trapped in a detention camp. Her lawyers had brought a test case against the UK government's controversial policy of stripping the citizenship of those who went to join ISIS and are now being held without trial. How do you think the recent Shamima Begum ruling relates to these questions about defining who is and is not British? There's lots of things not to like about this case. There's lots of things to be very concerned about um, about her. I understand the you know public interest. I understand issues of public safety. I understand various issues going on in the background. But still, Bangladesh, as far as I'm aware, Bangladesh is saying that we don't recognize her as one of ours. And so, in stripping her of her, of her British citizenship, you know that uh, is ruling her. Stateless. And the government is going to be, you know, trying to resist this for political reasons, for, you know, winning votes and other types of stuff. But, but put this on the other, put the shoe on the other foot, right? If the British government's view of these things is right, and you've got people with British passports who are in other places doing, you know, things that people don't like, you know, would this country be happy with Canadian governments, American governments, Iraqi governments, Syrian governments, other governments saying, you know, right, we don't like you for good reasons, for bad reasons. We're going to strip you of your Canadian, American, 
Mexican citizenships because we think you're really British. Even though you're not British, we think you really are. Can other countries say of people, of their citizens abroad, arbitrarily, we're going to strip you of our citizenship, but we're not violating treaty rights because we think you could be British. There was an empire once. You could be connected somehow to something. Your problem, pretty Patel. We would say, I would have thought, this is absolutely outrageous in the extreme. It is for Her Majesty's most loyal government to make this judgment, not for the bloody um, Canadians, Americans. You know, it's not for the Chinese to determine who's British. It's for the British government to determine who's British and only the British government to determine who's British. Now, that's seemingly, you know, right. You know, as, as lawyers, we would say this. Politically, you would say that's also the right thing to do. So if that's kind of obviously the right way to go, then why is the British government saying, you know, trying to stick with the story of, well, you know, we are going to determine not only who's British, but who's really Bangladeshi or who's really American who or who's really from Argentina, especially in cases where that other country we say someone is a citizen of, they say they're not a citizen of us. They never asked. They never were. They never had a passport. We can prove it. And that's not end. That's not in dispute. There's no dispute over Shamima Begin ever having a Bangladeshi passport. She never did, uh, and so on and so forth. And is there a racial thing behind here? I think there probably is. You know, the cases that come up, uh, you, you don't see people who look like me in trouble like this. Tom, you speak about the disconnect between the perception of levels of immigration in the UK and the reality. And you say that even if the facts were better publicised, it's not about winning over minds, but about winning over hearts. How do you think we go about winning over hearts? I mean, I think we ought to really genuinely go back to the, the Crick Advisory Group, um, getting people out into the country, uh, a national conversation. In thinking about what it means to be British, there are a lot of misperceptions, misconceptions, both of our history uh, and, both, and also of our present, about who we are and who we were, how these things connect together. And I think it kind of one way of going about it is just trying to educate in a top-down way of having our teachers drill into things and students and British values and other stuff. And there's a place for that too. But I think the main thing is to kind of get these things out in the open. Um, some might see it as, as challenging, ethnically wrong views of stuff and other things. And yeah, there's, a, there's, there's, there's that to do. But I think, you know, what is it that people think it means to be British? You know, what, what, do, they, what do they think that is? And then, and then holding it up to scrutiny, not to knock people down. It's not about elites in London. I don't live in London. Um, telling the rest of the country how they should really think or be in terms of some metropolitan view of things and other stuff. I don't live in a city. I live in a village. It's not about that. It's about having a national conversation about what these things are and just kind of putting out there that who Britain is is Welsh speakers. It's Scots speakers, it's Irish speakers. And again, oaths of allegiance, um, you know, oaths of citizenship. You know, when I was at my citizenship ceremony 
uh, in, when I did it in Gateshead, if I wanted to do my oath to the Queen to be a full British citizen, if I want to do that in Welsh, they gave me the Welsh to do it in, and I could do that right then and there in Welsh. I didn't have to do English. So, you know, even today and even 300 years ago, you didn't have to only do things in English. And so, so I think, you know, getting this out in the open, not hiding, not making people feel bad about it, putting this out in the open, having a chat about this, to kind of holding things up as to kind of who and what we are, and thinking about things like tests, um, for example, if we are going to have them at all, as tests that any British citizen could pass. And also thinking when people become British, this is not something we're embarrassed about, that we hide, that ceremonies are something that happens behind closed doors. But we do something a bit more like the American model or what happens in other countries where, you know, people swear allegiance and do things at national sporting events where people clap, where they're happy. No one boos people swearing they're becoming American at a baseball game. Boo, we don't like Americans who can vote and other stuff. You know, they don't do this. Here, it, you know, it, it's kind of hidden in the background. People don't talk about immigrants. Immigrants are an other. They never become us. They're never recognized as really kind of being us in any kind of social way. The government doesn't do anything to help this, um, that uh, immigrants are left on their own to steer themselves to the system. And then once they're through, um, you know, again, still left on their left on their own and with, with people still, you know, you're not really one of us and all this other stuff like this. And, and so I think a national conversation is a way to go. One that should probably be uh, many months, maybe a year to kind of really bring things out in the open, get people talking and have some kind of solid plan for a test that all could pass, a ceremony that all are welcome to, to, to join in in the celebration. You know, my research found that, you know, the test seemed to find citizens, you know, it, it disintegrated feelings of connectiveness. You know, citizens didn't, you know, going through the process, didn't do the test to feel closer to being British. They didn't feel like they learned about how to become a better British citizen or become more integrated as, as a part. They, they felt kind of hurt. They felt a bit distance. This, this is just a, an obvious tool to keep me from joining rather than something that I ought to know, something I ought to do. And it was obvious about everyone who went through it. This is a standard not expected of anybody else as to what it, you know, what's expected to be British. So I think, you know, and, and so it kind of it didn't help integrate. It had a negative thing. And so I think we, we, we fixed that by having a test that people see as more fair, Fair play, essential British value, have it all transparent, don't try to make it hard, uh, as it were, or, or secretive, have everything in the open, and, and make it a, you know, um, you know, kind of a more uh, open, accountable process that is kind of more welcoming for those who follow the rules and, and be more clear about what those rules are, both to those who want to integrate, those who want to become citizens, but also those who are citizens. There's very little integrate, involvement with citizens as to what it means to join their club. And that seems to be, see, you know, kind of not consulting with the members seems a very bad way of, of running a golf club or running a country. Uh, you should always consult with the members on what the membership, you know, what new members should be doing or not doing. But, you know, there you are. I'm, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Tom. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change.
young people.